So Luke chapter 2, beginning at the first verse, this is the infallible word of God. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, The shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. May God bless his word to our hearts and lives. Beloved, it was back in 1857 that Queen Victoria was asked to choose a more permanent location for the capital of the newly formed province of Canada. And instead of Toronto or Kingston or Montreal, she chose Ottawa. And I think it's very arguable that if Ottawa hadn't been made the capital at that time, not many people would know the name of that backwater logging town 
and military fort at all. But as I thought of Ottawa, isn't it amazing that you know the name of a small rural town in Palestine named Bethlehem? How many other small towns in the Middle East do you know? Even today, the population of Bethlehem is only around 30,000 people. And yet, for 2,000 years, people from all around the world instantly recognize the name of that little town. Many people these days of the year are singing about it. But are they thinking about it? You know, of course, it's one thing to sing and another thing to think while you sing. We've already been singing this morning. Have you been thinking as you've been singing? Or have the words become so familiar that you can just sing on autopilot? Lots of people can sing about Bethlehem. They know the carol. But have they thought about Bethlehem? Why do we know that town at all? Well, the reason, of course, boys and girls, you know, is all because of Jesus. Jesus of Bethlehem. And that's not just an historical, interesting historical fact so that you can win a game of Bible trivial pursuit. Jesus of Bethlehem, that's filled with so much practical and spiritual meaning and blessing for the people of God. Boys and girls, before this morning, before we've just read this, did you know where Jesus was born? Recent survey said that 60% of evangelicals thought Jesus was born in Jerusalem. But you know he was born in Bethlehem. But do you know why? Do you know how that one detail of his birth teaches us so many lessons? This morning, by God's grace, from the scripture, we are going to consider Jesus of Bethlehem. And then this afternoon, Lord willing, a similar and much more popular name of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. Both of those identifying truths about Jesus are filled with significance for every human being but especially for every Christian. Alfred Edersheim, I don't know if you know the name, was born into a Jewish home in Vienna in 1825. Eventually, he emigrated to Hungary and became a teacher of languages. He was converted to Christianity in Pest when he came under the influence of a Scottish teacher, John Duncan whose love for the Jewish people and knowledge of things, all things Hebrew uh, earned him the nickname Rabbi Duncan, though he was Scottish. Uh, he was at that time a Free Church of Scotland chaplain to workmen who were working on constructing a bridge over the Danube. So they're a bunch of work. They have a chaplain as they build their bridge. Edersheim eventually accompanied John Duncan 
back to Scotland and studied theology at New College in Edinburgh and then later at the University of Berlin. He is today best known as a Bible scholar uh, known for his book, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. Wonderful book, opening up the Hebrew, the Jewish context and background of the Gospels. In that book, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, Alfred Edersheim said this, speaking of whether Jesus is in fact the Messiah. He said, to the question, whether this hope, the hope of the coming Messiah, has ever been realized, or rather, whether one has appeared whose claims to Messiahship have stood the test of investigation and time, impartial history can make only one answer. It points to Bethlehem and Nazareth. Bethlehem and Nazareth. It is to Bethlehem and Nazareth that we must go to meet Messiah, to meet the long-awaited Savior of his people, to meet the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the perfect prophet, priest, and king. And so this morning, a fuller, perhaps, introduction than we ordinarily have of Jesus of Bethlehem. Jesus of Bethlehem. What are the lessons for us as we think about the birthplace of the Lord? Well, the first lesson is this, the authority and reliability of the Bible. The authority and reliability of the Bible. Jesus of Bethlehem? Ah, the Bible is true. God keeps his promises. It's one of the first things that should come to your mind when you hear Jesus of Bethlehem. Bethlehem? God's word is true. We think in terms of this lesson of the prophecy regarding Bethlehem. The prophecy. Jesus of Bethlehem teaches us in a very practical and clear way that the Bible is God's word and that God keeps his word. He keeps his promises. When we read elsewhere in the gospel that the wise men, the magi, were seeking the one born king of the Jews, they went to Jerusalem. But there they were in their search directed both by scribe and star instead to Bethlehem. How did Herod's counselors know the answer to the wise men's question so quickly? Where is he born king of the Jews? They answered right away because they knew. They knew their Bible. Bethlehem. Bethlehem. We've heard it this morning. Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. You, Bethlehem, little Bethlehem, small Bethlehem. And rabbinic tradition, based on Micah, for centuries knew that Messiah would come from Bethlehem. What does Micah 5 tell us? It's amazing. Micah gave that prophecy in the middle of the 8th century B.C. 
You, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. For such a small, relatively insignificant place when compared with Jerusalem, for instance, Bethlehem, it was a small town, but it had great history. There were actually two Bethlehems in Israel. One was located in the land of Zebulun. And the other town of Bethlehem is the one that interests us this morning. And so it was originally called Ephrath, Genesis 48, the place where Rachel was buried. That's why in Micah's prophecy about the birthplace of Messiah, it's very specific. We read of Bethlehem, Ephrathah, or Bethlehem in the land of Judah. Bethlehem is about 10 kilometers southwest of Jerusalem, situated up on a high ridge with terraced slopes on all sides. The Philistines were there in the days of David. David took Bethlehem. Later, reinforced by Rehoboam, 2 Chronicles 11.6, Near Bethlehem, there was a great castle built by King Herod, like a fortress. Micah was a preacher, a prophet. He saw and preached against the sins of greed and fraud and injustice and ingratitude and conspiracy and idolatry. And he was preaching to the church. And so God, through Micah, announced the historical judgment of Ruin and captivity, Babylon. But yet in Micah, the grace of God shines through. God would send deliverance. Not just someone to deliver Israel out of physical exile and captivity, but one day God would send a Savior to deliver his people, men and women and boys and girls, from the captivity of sin. The name Micah means... Who is like God? Who is like God? When you think of Bethlehem and the Savior born there, that question should grip you. Who is like God? Who even though he is so sinned against, so rebelled against, yet he is so willing to forgive Micah 7.18, who is a God like you? That's a play on the prophet's name. Who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be true to Jacob and show mercy to Abraham as you pledged on earth to our fathers in days long ago. You see, it's about the promises that God has made. It's about, is God faithful to his word and his promises? That promise given centuries before to Abraham. The promise of a coming Savior. The Messiah. The hope that Micah ultimately is speaking about. 
and echoing through the generations from the time of the prophet Micah in Micah 5.2, but you, Bethlehem, echoing through generation and century after century after century, Jesus of Bethlehem. Jesus of Bethlehem. Jesus, born in Bethlehem, beloved, is God keeping his promise. The gospel accounts are not myth or legend. The whole way that Mary and Joseph were brought to Bethlehem would have never been part of a Jewish legend. A census? That's not always a good thing biblically, in and of itself. But a census called by a Roman emperor, administered by a hated Herod, Again, Edersheim said, if the account of the circumstances which brought Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem has no basis in fact, but is a legend invented to locate the birth of the Nazarene in the royal city of David, it must be pronounced most clumsily devised. The Jews would have never, ever made up a legend like this. It goes so against the grain. But friends... The Bible is true. It is God's word. It tells us what will happen long before it takes place. Micah 5.2, Jesus of Bethlehem. He keeps his word. He is true to Jacob in order to show mercy to Abraham. Jesus of Bethlehem, the authority, the reliability of the scripture. This is so fundamental and foundational for you, for me, for the people of God. How can you know what is true? Where can you go to learn about God? About yourself, really about yourself, and about the only true and real and lasting hope for life and eternity. Where can you go? Peter said to Jesus, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Friends, trust the Bible. Trust the Bible. Here's the first lesson. Jesus of Bethlehem, trust the Bible. Bethlehem was no accident. It was not random. All in God's plan, and God's plan revealed in the Bible. The Bible is true and trustworthy. Nothing can keep God from keeping his promises. In fact, all things must work together as God keeps his promises. Even the sinful, listen to this, even the sinful motives of the pagan Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, was all part of God's decree. J.C. Ryle said, The Lord orders all things in heaven and earth. He turns the heart of the king wherever he wills. Little did the haughty Roman emperor and his officer Cyrenius think they were instruments in the hand of the God of Israel. 
And we're only carrying out the eternal purposes of the King of Kings. A true Christian should never be greatly moved or disquieted by the conduct of the rulers of the earth. He should see with the eyes of faith the hand overruling all that they do to the praise and glory of God. The sovereignty of God, the authority, reliability, truthfulness of his word. What a comfort that is. For the people of God in every generation, I hope you see that as a comfort today. For you. As we wait for Jesus' second coming, will God be faithful? Will he keep his promises for you as you trust in him? Will the devil or some human power exist sometime, someday, some way that might frustrate the plan of God? Sometimes the people of God respond by saying amen. You should respond to that by crying out, No! No! Never! Never! Bethlehem assures you that you can trust God and trust his word. Do you get frustrated? Do you wonder when you see what governments and political leaders are doing in our country and around the world? You think Caesar Augustus, and then you think Jesus of Bethlehem. And you remember... God rules, and he keeps his word. The word of God is true, beloved. His warnings are true. Take them seriously. And his forgiveness, his promises of forgiveness are true and real. Through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, believe it. And his promises and purposes for his children and for his church, his blessings are and will be real and realized for his people. Beloved, when you have a Bible as a Christian and you read it and you believe it, you have an anchor for your soul, even in the greatest storms of life. Lesson one, the authority and reliability of God and his word, the prophecy of Bethlehem. The second lesson is the identity of Jesus, the identity of Jesus. And here we focus on the person of Bethlehem, the person born in Bethlehem. The reason you know about Bethlehem is because the greatest person ever to have walked the face of the earth was born there. He is Jesus of Bethlehem. But who is he? Who is he really? Who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Again, Micah, the prophet, so long before Jesus was born, reveals the identity of the coming Savior. First, Micah reveals the eternal being and divine nature of the coming Messiah. 
Listen again to Micah 5.2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me, who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. That English translation, ancient times, can be translated from everlasting, from eternity. Earlier in Micah chapter 2, verse 13, we read, One who breaks open the way will go before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them. The Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, the Lord at their head. Jesus of Bethlehem is the Son of God. He's God the Son. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, Jesus himself, before Abraham was, I am. The name of Yahweh. Remember when Jesus was born, the shepherds heard the angels praising God. An angelic choir like that was only heard once before by human ears. I'll let you think. An angelic host and choir like that was only heard once before by human ears. Above him were seraphim. Each had six wings, and with two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's what Isaiah heard that day in the temple. And listen to what John tells us in John 12, 41. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Who is Jesus of Bethlehem? He is Yahweh. He is holy, holy, holy. The Lord God Almighty. God the Son. Beloved, the identity of Of Jesus. The Jesus of Bethlehem is God the Son. But we also see in Micah the true humanity of Jesus of Bethlehem. Micah 5, verse 3. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has borne a child. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, John 1. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Genesis 3.15, the first gospel promise, we learn that Messiah would be a man, the seed of the woman. After the flood, we learn that he would be of the family of Noah's son, Shem. Then the focus narrowed to the descendants of Abraham. The promise is traced through the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In Genesis 49, Jacob announces on his deathbed that the king, the scepter, would not depart from Judah. Later on in the Bible, we read the story of Boaz, who came from the tribe of Judah. Where did Boaz live? He lived in Bethlehem. 
At the time of Boaz and Ruth, after that time, in just a few generations down their family tree, we reach Jesse and one of his sons, one of his boys in particular, who is to become the greatest type or picture of Messiah, the shepherd who became king, David. David's hometown was Bethlehem. The Messiah was to be a descendant of the woman, of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and David. That is why Micah prophesied his birth in Bethlehem, David's city. You see, the promised Messiah, Jesus of Bethlehem, is the God-man. He's the God-man. Fully God. Fully man. Two complete, real natures united to one glorious divine person, the Son. Have we heard it too often? The God-man. And of course, he is the perfect mediator between God and man in himself and in his work. Do you know him? Do you know the God, man? Are you amazed as you think about him? The God, man. I think more people today, sadly, are more absorbed by taking and sending selfies than by beholding the God, man. People would rather look at themselves all day long than lift their eyes to God in the flesh. God, man. You know what we should do? Think of your lives today. You put anything, anything, you put any person You put any idol, you put any enemy, you put the things that can so often dominate our thoughts, you put in your your struggles and your concerns about today and tomorrow, you put that all and put it all together on one side of the great way scale of your mind. And on the other side, you put this. The God-man. The God-man. And you know the way that balance will tip. He's the God-man. Is there someone better you're waiting for? The God-man. O soul, are you wearied and troubled? No light in the darkness you see? There's light for a look at the Savior, and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. 
But why did the Son of God humble himself and take our nature? Why did the Word become flesh? That's our third and last lesson this morning, the work of Jesus. The work of Jesus. And we could consider this as the plan of Bethlehem. The plan of Bethlehem. We can learn much about the Messiah's character and ministry from the fact that he was born in David's city, Bethlehem. Just as David was a shepherd king, so would Jesus be. Look at Micah's prophecy. Messiah was to be a ruler, a king. But what kind of ruler? He would be a shepherd king. And that imagery speaks of the great and the tender saving care and concern he has for his people. What does a shepherd do? Shepherds protect, shepherds lead, and shepherds feed their sheep. Shepherds protect. Listen, we heard it. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. You see, boys and girls, they were protecting. They were keeping watch. I don't know if sheep sleep. Someone could tell me after. I suspect they do. But the shepherds weren't sleeping. They were watching all through the night. Christ, as God, is king of the universe. As God, he possesses all power, omnipotent power for protecting his people. That's true. Why then did he become man? Because he needed to become man, the last Adam, in order to save and protect his people from their worst enemy, their own sin. Around Bethlehem, there were many sheep and shepherds, like the ones to whom the angels came. In Genesis 35, we read, When Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem, over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar, and to this day that pillar marks Rachel's tomb. Israel moved on again and pitched his tent beyond Migdal Adair. Migdal Adair, that's just the Hebrew, and it means the tower of the flock. It was a watchtower that shepherds would build to be high up so that they could see. If you've ever been to Dorset, there's a fire tower high up so that the fire rangers could see smoke coming up from the bush. The shepherds built a tower, Migdal Adair, the tower of the flock, from which they watched and protected their sheep. Did you listen to Micah 4, verse 8? Listen. As for you, watchtower of the flock, Migdal Adair, stronghold of daughter Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. Your kingship will come to daughter Jerusalem. The angels came and made their announcements to shepherds at the Migdal Adair, the tower of the flock. Micah 4, verse 8. Why? Because the flocks near Bethlehem were not ordinary flocks. Nor were these shepherds ordinary shepherds. These sheep 
were the sheep specifically raised for sacrifice at the temple. They were destined to serve as the great picture of forgiveness through the death of a spotless substitute. It was to the Migdal Adair that the angels came. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Messiah, the Lord. Yes, the King, but the suffering servant King, the shepherd King, the good shepherd who would lay down his life for his sheep in sacrificial, saving love. And so when John the Baptist saw Jesus, he proclaimed, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He saves and protects his own people from their own sin. The protection that we need most. He is Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Micah 5, 4 and 5, He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace. Ultimately and most importantly, through the death of Christ, through faith in him, peace with God. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you have peace with God? What good is it if you gain a whole world of other kinds of peace, but you lose your soul? Don't let the festivities of these days, the presents, the external tokens of peace and well-being, everyone gets along. Happy holidays. Oh, everything's fine. Everything's not fine. And there can be lots of ways that everything's not fine and and many reasons for that. But the ultimate reason why this world is not fine is sin. And your ultimate problem is God. A holy God. Do you have peace with him? And not just an imagined peace that you've made up in your mind. God and I are okay. Peace according to this word. Peace that has your sin dealt with, and there's only one way, to the death of the good shepherd, trusting in him. Shepherds protect, and Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Shepherds lead. Jesus' birth in Bethlehem announces his kingship. He is a ruler. He is the sovereign. He is a lawgiver. The one called Jesus, because he himself saves the people from their sin, is also King Jesus. The Bible knows no separation between Jesus as Savior and Jesus as Lord for his people. Jesus is the King of kings regardless of our belief and trust in him. And all must stand before him. As Psalm 2 announces, God has set up his king with an iron of scepter and an iron scepter in one hand and a scepter of grace in the other. Everyone lives under one of those two realities, sovereign realities. But for anyone saved from the penalty of the king's law through faith in Jesus, death for sinners. He is our king of kings and lord of lords in a completely different way. 
we serve him gladly because he served us. We willingly embrace the king's law as the rule of our lives in gratitude for having been saved. Salvation by grace always results in a life of glad obedience to the rule of the king. And Jesus is such a kind ruler. The rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. Their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your servant. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life for many. Jesus is king, and he has a law. But he's so gentle. Come unto me, all you are weary and heavy laden. And I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The gentle shepherd king who would lead his people like a flock, not drive them like a herd. He is king, but how approachable he is, how forgiving he is. If he were born in a palace, which one of us would think we could approach him? But he was born in that stable. To those who are poor and weak and insignificant in the world's eyes, Jesus is the king who comes down to our level and leads us for our good. Lastly and quickly, shepherds feed us. Bethlehem was located on the central highland ridge of Israel. The Mediterranean to the west, those humid winds that would blow off the Mediterranean Sea and then would rise in elevation and drop the rain on places like Bethlehem so that east of Bethlehem there's the dry climate, the the barren places even to the Dead Sea. Sort of like living in Edmonton where the Pacific winds come up and water the west side of the Rockies and then in Edmonton you're dry. That's like Israel. Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a very fertile place. Wheat, barley, olives, pomegranates, figs, grapes were all grown there. The best wine in Judah came from Bethlehem. Bethlehem is Hebrew for house of bread. It was the breadbasket of Israel. Ephrathah means fertile or fruitful. Jesus, the shepherd king, is the living bread come down from heaven. He shall stand, Micah 5.4, and feed in the strength of the Lord. Shepherd can mean feed as a root word. Jesus is king. He calls you as his people, saved by grace through faith in him, to live your life for him. A life of holy obedience and a life of sacrificial service. Do you have the strength for that? How are you doing this morning? Living the Christian life. There are times where we run. We run in the Christian life, but there are times when we stumble. There are times where we can just barely put one foot in front of the other, it feels like. Do you have refreshment after long and weary labors for the Lord? Jesus is the good shepherd who leads his flock to green pastures. 
And it's really himself. To feed upon Christ. To those who come to him in faith, he offers the true satisfaction of knowing him and the benefits of his salvation. His word, the Bible, is food because in it we learn of him who was born in the house of bread, Bethlehem. People often enjoy many special meals during the Christmas season. Don't forget the nourishment of your soul. Don't forget the nourishment of your soul. I need to remember that myself. In kingdom work, in church work, in the Christian life. Sometimes I speak to people and say, oh, it's just so hard, I'm just so weary. How are you, how's your diet? It's good to ask that physically. It's more important to ask it spiritually. You're weary? You're disheartened? You're weak? Why? Truth be told, you're starving. You've been starving yourself. You've been starving yourself. Because you haven't opened the book. And I'm not just saying that to you, I'm saying that to me. Matt, why are you so weary? You need a good meal. That's what my mom would say. (laughs) You need a good meal. Before work or after work, she would say it. You need a good meal. Well, beloved, in the Christian life, we need to feed upon Christ. We need to feed upon Christ. I am the bread of life, he said. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Well, beloved, at Christmas time, we hear a lot about Bethlehem and the other words that people know. Let's not get distracted. It's interesting that as significant as Bethlehem is in redemptive history, we do not hear of it in the Bible after the account of Jesus' birth. Although the records of the gospel is not exhaustive, we do not read of Jesus visiting or ministering there at all. And yet, one of the great shrines in Christendom is the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem, marking the alleged place of Christ's birth. Let me leave you with this, dear ones. If the focus is just on the place, people have missed the point of Bethlehem. I pray that that wouldn't be true of any of us here. Bethlehem is important because it points us to the King. It points us to the Good Shepherd who protects and leads and feeds his people who lay down his life for the sheep. Is it possible that some here or some watching have even sung, O little town of Bethlehem, and never received the king? I bring you today, again, good news of great joy. In the town of David, a Savior has been born. And he is Christ the Lord.